We all want to be the watchmaker. But if the watch breaks, you're the only one who can fix it. That's a quote from business strategy consultant and seven stages of growth expert, Laurie Taylor. And I interview Laurie and John Garrett today in this episode. It, the title of the episode is Why Moving from Being a Watchmaker to a Beekeeper Matters and How to Make the Move. It's a great interview. I just got off of the phone with them and had from our discussion, and I can't wait to share it with you. Michael, hit it. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Hi there, my name is Susie Price. I'm with Priceless Professional Development and you are listening to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast. This is our 16th year where we help senior leaders build an energetic, committed, drama-free Wake Up Eager Workforce. So we do this using hiring science, helping you put the right people in the right seats, and then using that same science to help you throughout the life cycle of employee to helping with anything from onboarding to training and working with teams. We also do what we do, building a Wake Up Eager Workforce through our books, our newsletter, this podcast, and our website. And so we're all about Wake Up Eager here, which is the art and science of bringing the best of who you are to everything you do to create a rich and satisfying professional life and personal life. And so wakeupeagerworkforce.com is where you can find the directory of all of our episodes. This is episode number 54. And again, the title is Why Moving from Being a Watchmaker to a Beekeeper Matters and How to Make the Move. And we are talking with seven stages of growth experts, John, Garrett, and Lori Taylor. Now, seven stages of growth, they will explain what it is. Uh, it's a powerful assessment tool and process that leaders can lay over their business to understand what stage of growth are we in, what are the challenges, and what exactly do we need to do about it. The show notes for today's episode can be found at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash beekeeper. That's all lowercase and all one word, pricelessprofessional.com forward slash beekeeper. Today in this episode, we talk more about that tool, the seven stages of growth, so you'll understand the components of it and how it helps organizations know what they need to do to grow going to understand some of the keys to strategic growth and successful strategy. And then we had a great time talking a little bit about influences in Laurie and John's life, their favorite books and training, and just things that have mattered to them as they've grown as very successful professionals. And so I always feel like all of that is so interesting. And, and particularly today in this episode, what Laurie and John share about their tool and about who they are as humans on this planet and things that have mattered to them and uh, make them who they are today. It's just a good, good discussion. So I'm so happy to share it with you. Let me tell you a little bit about John's background. John works as the executive director of an organization, his organization, Glen Eagle Resources. And he is also one of our partners here at Priceless Professional Development. So we have strategic partnerships with folks like John, and he collaborates with Priceless in the area of strategic 
strategic planning and team development, and he is our seven stages of growth expert for businesses. He also focuses on succession planning and project management, and uh, we just really value his knowledge, his strategic insight, and he brings a very caring and thoughtful approach to everything he does. He is certified in this tool that we're going to talk about today, the seven stages of growth, and is a certified professional behavioral analyst. So he he and I met and he talks about it. We talk about it in the interview at TTI Success Insights, which is our partner, our key partner here in our business. He is also serves as an adjunct faculty member at the E.J. Orso School of Business at LSU. Uh, he has international development experience in Africa, Russia, Belarus, Honduras, and China. He has a B.A. from the University of Mississippi and a Master's of Divinity from Emory University and, and has completed doctoral work at Asbury Theological Seminary. So he has led the First United Methodist Church and plant teams all over the world, and he is the executive director of 4M Foundation and Glen Eagle Resources. He has his wife, Jennifer. He talks about her in our discussion, and he has two sons. He lives in Senatoba, Mississippi, which is just south of Memphis. Lori is the president and founder of Flashpoint, and she is the founder or the creator of training and developing seven stages of growth experts around the country. She has a solid foundation, which she references in our discussion today. She was a reluctant entrepreneur, but she took that experience of being an entrepreneur and parlayed it into a multi-million dollar business. And so for many years, that business had 65 to 67% revenue growth. So she has great experience in helping being a leader who has led businesses and she has now taken this seven stages of growth process and helps others, helps not only organizations and CEOs use the process, but she helps consultants like John and others in the country learn how to use the process. So she's an author, speaker, business consultant, and uh, she has spoken to 4,500 CEOs in the last three years, and she's built this growth curve specialist community. And she also partners with our key partner, TTI Success Insights. So she brings that tool to our partner. She's written many books, and I've got a link to all of her books uh, in the show notes at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash beekeeper. Lori lives in Tucson, Arizona with her husband, Dave. So I wanted to mention that. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. All right. I'm excited today to have Lori and John here. Welcome, guys. Glad you're here. Thank you, And we're going to jump right in and have Lori talk a little bit about going from a watchmaker to a beekeeper and share a little bit about what does it mean and how does it relate to business and the work that both John and Lori do around the seven stages of growth. Lori? Thanks, Susie. You know, the thing I love the most about the seven stages of growth is it gives us such a rich place to talk. And in a story that James Fisher, who is the author of the study behind the seven stages of growth, he tells a story about the fact that there's a watchmaker who is very, very precise about making timepieces. And they're very, you know, they're very intricate. Everything takes a special kind of tool. And so you're very, it's very, very specialized work. Whereas a beekeeper goes out to his highs every day and he has to manage all these bees that are swarming around. 
So the story goes that most people tend to want to be a watchmaker. They think, well, I want to be precise. I want to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. But in fact, if that watch breaks, if that watch splatters on the concrete, the only person that can put the watch back together is the watchmaker. If the beekeeper drops the hive from five feet and the hive just breaks open, guess what? Those bees are all programmed to know exactly what to do to build a new hive. And the beekeeper doesn't need to do anything. He can just stand back. So the correlation is in every business, we've got to have a team that understands what they're supposed to be doing and be very clear about their roles and responsibilities. So the CEO isn't the only person that knows everything. And that's the value of the, the seven stages of growth. And, and as I've done this now for 15 years, the, the model helps CEOs really identify what they need to do and how they need to react to the growth that's happening in their organization. So that's the fun story about the watchmaker and the beekeeper. We need more beekeepers. I like it. And it's interesting to me in organizations how often the bees don't know what to do. Exactly. And, and you know, we sometimes assume they do, and that's where we get in trouble. And the other thing this model does really well in the process that we take them through, it's called the stages of growth x-ray. There's a lot of dialogue that shows up. And when people start talking about things they're not used to talking about, clarity becomes the name of the game. And suddenly people go, well, I, I didn't understand it that way. Why didn't I understand it? And the CEOs may be a little taken aback that, well, I thought I explained it very well, but we know how tough communication is. On a day-to-day -day basis, we have to be better at communicating and this model kind of forces you down that path. That's great. And, and it is true. You can ask us, ask a leader, do they know, do they know what's expected? Absolutely. And then you go to the team or individual. Nope, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know what he wants. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's all yeah. the time. So when you said there's dialogue that shows up, that's not usual, what would be some examples of unusual dialogue? Is it about, do you know what your responsibilities are or what's some examples of that? Cause you said it's dialogue that they don't usually have. Well, and good question, Susie. So sometimes we talk as CEOs, I ran a company, I was a COO of a company and we took it up to about 120 employees. So every day we assumed we were talking a language that the rest of the team understood, but we were the owners. We understand we live in a different world than those employees do. So the model helps break down the mystery, what I call the mystery of running a business and makes it just more comfortable for people to talk about things. So if there's a there's a, a couple of statements in there that says, so do we understand what key indicators are and are we tracking those key indicators on a regular basis? So the conversation comes up like, well, wait a minute, what's a key indicator? Mm. Ah, great question. Let's talk about what a key indicator is and why it's important. So when they go through these assessments, there's probably 50 to 60 statements they're responding to from their own perspective. And now we're getting that conversation going and everybody's going, oh, I didn't know what a key indicator, now I do. And I didn't know what cash flow was. Now that you explained cash flow, I have a much better understanding of it. Or what is a master process? So now we're giving them what I call the language of growth. And that mm. just rich is a, it's just a much easier way to communicate. 
Mm, I love that giving them the language of growth. That's yeah, that's that's, that's good. That's it's, good. Yeah. Hey, John, why don't you share? Since we're talking about the seven stages of growth, what are they? Oh gosh. <laughs> well. They are seven. They're all built around the number of employees of an organization. When the Fisher, I believe, was the kind of the guru that came up with this, and Laurie studied it under, and I picked up some of the training, some from Laurie, too. By the way, this is a real privilege to be on the call with both of you guys. It's built around the number of employees that are in the organization. Other strategic planning uses different approaches. This one has to do with the number of employees. So Stage one, I'm having to call it approximate now, but at any rate, it goes up to 500 employees, and each stage has a different number from one being the smallest, seven being the highest, and all of them are different. Now, that, that was the uh, interesting thing to me, and an amazing part of this journey was to understand that all organizations, one size does not fit all organizations, and seven stages doesn't try to do that, which was wonderful stuff. A great approach. So when you think about the seven stages of growth, you're looking at seven based on size and different things are happening right. in each stage. Yeah. If I, if I could put it this way, stage one is startup. Okay. I think it goes, what, Laurie, one to 11, something like that. One uh, to 10. Number of employees. Yep. And then stage seven can have up to 500 and that's an organization that has departments in it and it's a pretty good size. So, yeah, Susie, that's kind of how it works. Well, are there names for each stage, or is it worth it to dialogue around what they actually are? Or, You know, John, I'm happy to help with that if you want me to. Yeah, Laurie, that, that's how you might be able to um, dial in on this. Yeah, good Yeah, because, Susie, one of the things that is so cool about this, and John's absolutely right, it was based on the fact that as a company grows, the complexity increases. And if you've ever run an organization, you know that people are the hardest things we manage when we're running an organization. So this model is the only model out there that defines these specific stages by number of employees, not by revenue, not by profitability. And so the Fisher also gave titles to each stage. As John was saying, stage one is startup. It has one to 10 employees. And it's obvious if you're starting up a company there's different things you need to pay attention to than when you move into stage two. Stage two is called ramp up. It's got 11 to 19 employees. And I'll just go through the names so I can come back and talk about any one of them. But stage three, so in stage one and two, Susie, you are CEO centric. It's all about the passion and the vision and the excitement of that CEO who started the organization. Mm -hmm. And it's their vision that's gonna take that company forward. But when you flip into stage three, where it's called delegation, and you've got 20 to 34 employees, now it becomes enterprise-centric. And that CEO just can't manage 34 employees by themselves anymore. They have to start delegating responsibilities and roles. And that's why each name of each stage of growth is so critical to understand. I always start by explaining the name because that starts everybody understand what's happening underneath. Right. So see stage three is when you, when the beekeeper, you need to switch from being the watchmaker to the beekeeper, yes. or it would help if you did it during stages one and two, but you really, you have to make that move. 
Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because one of the other rules, there's four rules that govern the model. And the first one says, as soon as you land in any stage of growth, you're going to get ready for the next stage of growth. So this mm. is, again, really indicative of this model where you can actually predict what's coming. So if I know we've got a CEO in stage one and in you know six to eight months, they're going to flip into stage two, we can actually prepare them for what's coming. And the second rule says what you don't get done in any stage of growth doesn't go away. So now if you're in stage four called professional, now you've got 35 to 57 employees, you may have forgotten to take care of some things that happened to you in stage two or stage three, and that becomes a drag. You can't figure out why can't I get beyond here? Why do I keep having the same issues show up? So this model is really good about helping you go back a couple of stages and saying, hey, you didn't get this done. That's why you're not getting the traction you need. So those are two critical rules that CEOs really resonate with. When you say, hey, what you didn't get done in a previous stage of growth may be the thing that's causing you to stop growing, we can go into what we call these hidden agents and we can dig underneath the surface and find the root cause of what's holding them back and we can fix it and clear it and get them that traction they need. That's awesome. So we've got stage one and two CEO centric, stage three delegation enterprise, 20 to 34 employees, stage four professional. Yep. Stage four is when you have to start recognizing that now divisions are creeping into your organization. You've got maybe a sales division or a marketing division, or there's a production group that's now showing up. So professional is when that CEO has to recognize they've got to start hiring professional managers who have been there, done that, or train people to become good managers. And that's critical in stage four. If you do that well, and those managers develop their divisions very confidently, you want them focused on their divisions, kind of a silo thinking. When you move into stage five, now that has 58 to 95 employees, that's called integration. Now you want those managers who are running their divisions well to work together now as a team, become that leadership team that's actually going to start helping that CEO make decisions that run the company. So stage five is another really critical stage of growth to recognize because when those managers have been working by themselves, kind of in their own little world, now imagine the challenge of getting those really good managers to understand the dynamic of bringing all of their knowledge together and helping run the organization. It just gets a little more challenging, but it's doable. But right. and we can help the CEO understand what they need to do to do that. All right. So what's stage six and seven? So stage six is called strategic. Now you have 96 to 160 employees. And strategic is now where you're no longer this little fish in this huge fishbowl. You're a much bigger fish in a smaller fishbowl, and everybody now has you on their sites. Competitors that you didn't realize were out there now show up. So this strategic stage of growth is when that CEO has to really start looking out and beyond maybe a year. Now they've got to start looking out maybe three to five years to see where they need to take their organization to, to make sure they're still relevant 
and you know they're they're not getting caught up in hey we're already doing really good stuff we might not need to think about a new market a new location so that's the strategic and then when you flip into stage seven we've got 161 up to 500 employees it's called visionary when you've got a company that's that big now it's very easy for the organization to become complacent or for your products and services to become commoditized. And now the CEO has to go around and, and inspire the organization to start thinking more entrepreneurial so they don't get caught up in, oh, that's how we've always done it. We're good. Our customers love us. Everything's fine. No, you have to make sure in stage seven that your products are still differentiated in the marketplace and you're not looked at as a commodity and those competitors that have just been waiting in the wings for you to do that come in and what I call kind of create all kinds of havoc for you. So that's stage seven, big, big deal again for that CEO to kind of wake up and go, whoa, I can't just rest on our laurels. We've got to make sure we're still relevant in the marketplace. It's interesting to think about how the CEO, if it's the same CEO, which I'm thinking often maybe it isn't, I don't know, but I've seen over the years where the founder CEO really doesn't make it to the next levels. And maybe if they had a tool like this, they could because it's requiring different things throughout, you know, and those are different right. personal skills or different attributes that some of us have or don't have, right? Yeah. Yeah. The startup guy usually is not the long term guy. Yeah. If that's a way to put it, or, yeah. or or gal, yeah, yeah, that startup leader—that's a different leadership skill than the than the long-term manager. Right. Yeah. With this tool, they could grow because we all can if we're, you know, have the capability to and the interest, we can grow into each one of these roles. It would give you specific steps, which I think would be interesting. So, what are the four rules? You started them. Uh, let's finish them. First rule. Okay, so the third one is time will make a difference. So time will make a difference, meaning if you're a startup and you get some outside capital, you could literally grow from, you know, five employees overnight to 30 if you're, you know, if you've get, been given some capital to expand your market. So time in that case is kind of your enemy, meaning you it pushed you through from stage one to stage three overnight. And you have to even be more diligent as the CEO to make sure you're not ignoring the challenges that showed up in stage one. For instance, cash flow. Um, you're going to be destabilized by chaos. What are you doing to manage that chaos? So that time can work against you. Or, Susie, for instance, I've got a there's a client out in Philadelphia who's been a manufacturing company for 30 years, and they only have 10 employees. They don't want to get any bigger. So in this case, time is they've had time to really figure out what they're good at, get that cash flow under control, make sure their employees are really clear about their roles and responsibilities. But even then, you can learn things. So even if you're in one stage of growth for a long period of time, there's 27 business challenges that impact this model. And you're going to hit all 27 of them as you go through these stages of growth. So that stage one company who's been a stage one company for 30 years still is going to get introduced to all 27 of those business challenges. So in this case, they'll have time to really work on the ones they need to. And then the fourth one says, 
if you're not growing, you're dying. So something has to change in your organization. We don't dictate. You know, John and I aren't out there saying to people, you have to grow by numbers of people. No. What we're saying to you, what I said to this manufacturing company, you, what else are you doing to refresh your organization? Because just like in nature, if it's not growing, it's dying. And in organizations, we've got to make sure that we're refreshing our training we're refreshing our processes. We're refreshing our philosophies. Maybe we're refreshing our vision and our mission. Those things just can't stay the same and have you maintain a good, fresh, healthy organization. So those are the four rules. So it sounds like this tool for an organization that says, you know, I don't want to become 500 employees, but I do want to remain relevant and I want the business to prosper. They could still benefit tremendously because they're getting assessed on this x-ray tool you use assesses based on these 27 business challenges. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So they would get a report to say how they're doing in all of those. And even though they're not going to stage seven or six or they, they still will get input that can say, help them focus. I think the biggest thing that I see with businesses not knowing what to prioritize on and the thing that got John got so excited, got me so excited about as he's using this tool is that it helps leaders prioritize and companies prioritize. What's the most important thing to do, right? Yes, that's exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, they see it all, but I th what I often see is they're just overwhelmed. And so it's like, let's prioritize. Let's figure out what's most important right now. Yeah. And this tool seems like it would accelerate that process. Absolutely. It's a 30,000 foot view. And, and a lot of our leaders and managers, like people, I guess, nowadays are just overwhelmed with information and stuff and things to do. This gives them a, a 30,000 foot view. That's awesome. So, John, talk a little bit about... Um, I think you started using this with a, a organization and I know you're in the midst of the process, but anything you could share about how it's going, how you set it up, anything about that, that would be awesome. Well, it's just going amazing. This is a regional organization. I was a part of a, and have been a part of a succession leadership track with them. They realized that perhaps we needed uh, more and I realized that we needed more than the uh, level that we were hitting on with them, even though it's been well-received. And that's when I came across seven stages of growth. They're, they're a level four company. And their vision, the vision they already had was to go from $700 million in assets to $1 billion in assets. The CEO right now realizes that he needs to cast that vision. And the thing that I was able to share with him and get him kind of working with for a while was the understanding that we really needed that vision to have some infrastructure to it with this up and coming set of VTs. In other words, it was great to have the vision, but we needed a plan that was bigger than, in this case, the turnover of, of the two, three top leaders within the next two years. So we needed not only the vision, but we need a strategy for how to get there. Mm. Stages of growth has allowed us to do that. Mm. So how did you implement it? Like if you were to give somebody a 30,000 view of implementation, what happens? Do they, do you talk to people? Do they complete, does everybody in the organization complete something? Just kind of give an overview of how this actually happens, this x-ray. Well, the x-ray in this case was given to CEO, COO, CFO, and, and about eight or nine other 
upper level management. And okay. they took the assessments, in which case I began to process and put some stuff together for the delivery of the x-ray. Sometimes it, some people do it in a day. I did it in two days. And it was an amazing discovery, an uncovering process that is very complete, very detailed, but amazing clarity, which sounds contradictory, but the, the amazing clarity that comes out of it. What we're watching now is uh, the main challenge for a stage four, their stage four, is two things. One is the processes have gotten too cumbersome. That's exactly true for this one. And two, that this is a professional stage and the managers in, in some way had to be accelerated. And that's exactly, it exactly fit this organization. So we're watching now is the end of the process, the end game, so to speak, is to come out with five initiatives. And the beauty of this strategic planning is that you don't hand them a plan that said, this is what my recommendations are. It's a collaborative process where you help them uncover the non-negotiable leadership rules and uh, their five strengths, five challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of that, they get their five initiatives. They pick it. And it's been amazing to watch these branch managers, their VPs, with the consent of the CEO and COO now, recognizing that they needed to be a little less controlling and a little bit more coaching. Mm -hmm. And these branches managers have taken off, absolutely taken off with these five initiatives. It's been an exciting thing to watch, Susan. Well, it's the power of facilitation, which is, uh, and coaching is, you know, getting buy-in. So they're all part of the whole absolutely. process, which is that's amazing. And I love that you call it an x-ray because it's like, okay, when you go to the doctor and you get an x-ray, what's the doctor looking for? P specific things based on whatever your quote-unquote injury might be. And in this case, you're looking for certain things based on where they are. And I mean, it's just a really sharp. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, the other way that uh, was new to me, and I've really walked this down, is that alignment precedes engagement. Alignment precedes engagement. Everybody wants to get their employees engaged, the disengagement, the engagement, all that. But more than likely, particularly in a lot of these stages, there is an alignment problem, and they don't know that. And what this seven stages of growth allows for is the recognition that we are out of alignment, kind of like you're back, I guess, sometimes. If you can get everything back in alignment, the employees engage. And we're watching these VPs that will one day, some of them, be elevated to the top positions. We want to keep them together. They own this now. Mm. And, and ownership, uh, if you get to create it, right? Yep. And they're, that's what they're doing right now. That's awesome. And when you said it was amazing, the two-day debrief of the assessment that they all completed. Did they complete it online or is it handwritten or yes. what is it? It's online, right? It's, it's, it's an online process. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some of the assessments we work with, Susie, it's the same thing. Yeah. And when you said amazing clarity, oh, was it that they were like, Oh, like, so you could see the alignment happening, even starting during those two days when they could have objective information about what's going on in the organization. You said it was amazing and there was amazing yeah. clarity. Was it that, that they, they were all seeing the problems in a new way for the first time? Or I thought what was amazing to me was that there is a lot of data 
rightfully so that you first start with. And from that, because the training of this is so superb, what a facilitator can do and what we did, what I did, was work them through that to where out of all that data, there came this clarity. There wasn't any doubt about the five they wanted to run with. And uh, it was amazing to watch it run from just thousands of bits of data to, hey, these five things we really need to work on. And they are hard after it right now. So that's, that's the clarity. Yeah. So that's interesting. So much data, but it became clear. And usually when you're doing strategic planning, and not that I'm an expert at it because I don't really do it, but I've been in it. You know, there's all this fracture, you know, and it's like, no, I think this right. is important. No, I think that, and which is good because that's part of the facilitated process. But it sounds like to me when you get real data that really explains what's happening and then you have a framework to apply it against, such that's as right. the seven stages and all, that all organizations go through these challenges, then I can see why it was amazing and why they're, they're engaged. That's awesome. Well, the, the Achilles heel of strategic planning, and we've been into, we've all been in a thousand meetings where you have 20 pieces of paper on the walls and <laughs> everybody has a great idea. Yeah. And you do that in January. In March, people go, what was that? What did yeah. we do? And, and it's just lost. The key to strategic planning is intentionality over time. It's intentionality. Uh -huh over time and the seven stages of growth because they co-create their own plan with your help allows these initiatives to roll out over time it's just a, a totally different process with amazing results and i bet this ceo is is seeing that there's real possibility to reach his or their vision of a billion dollar in assets he's very very excited Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you're a caring facilitator and a caring, thoughtful person, John. So I know that that you have to have a great tool, but you also have, have to have a great facilitator. <laughs> and that's you. So that's awesome. Well, you're, you're kind. You're kind, Susie. Thank you. I'm just telling it. I can see it, mister. <laughs> hey, so uh, let's talk about this. And maybe, Laura, you could take this question. You know, so doing something like this, and I see this with the different opinion surveys that we do, or that I do, or, you know, 360 feedback. You know, it can feel vulnerable to a CEO. And one of the podcast interviews I did with a guy from Amazon, he said, you know, at Amazon, we open the kimono, which is, you know, we just lay it out on the table. That's our culture. That's what you do. And so this can feel like that, opening the kimono, which is, okay, I'm going to show you all the good, bad, the ugly. And I think that holds people back sometimes or has them feel tentative about something like this. So talk a little bit, Laurie, about how you prepare someone for this, a leader, a CEO, you know, and what has to be in place so that something like this is successful. Exactly, Susie, because the reality is CEOs take things personally because it's their baby. They're, they care a lot and they, they don't want things to go bad. And so they really feel vulnerable. So the process that John talked about so well, and it's just so exciting for me to hear John talk about his experience with this, is right before we do the actual x-ray, there's what we call the CEO debrief. And we make sure that we have sat down prior to the actual process and sat down and talked at least two hours where we bring 
that CEO into the results of all the assessments that the team has taken. We don't go into great detail, but we just make sure that they understand, one, what's going to happen. So here's the process that's going to go on in the next two days. And then you walk them through how people responded to certain aspects of the assessment. So there's, a, as John mentioned, there's the 27 challenges assessment. There's what we call the builder protector assessment. And then there are the non-negotiable rules. So it is funny. When I usually sit down with the CEO, one of the first things they ask me is, so how did I do? Yep. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, this isn't, this isn't really about you. How it takes it away from them feeling that it's about them as I talk about, this is an organizational issue. This isn't a CEO issue. This is how everybody is viewing the organization and everybody is the organization. So this, they're all coming clean. They're all being vulnerable saying, I don't know this. I didn't understand what this was about. So we try to take the surprise. I say, we never want a CEO to be surprised about anything. But we also manage during that process, that debrief, to explain, here's how they reacted to this. We're going to have a dialogue. And it is quantitative, Susie. We do have scores that actually come out of these assessments. But the first thing I say to the CEO is, I don't really care about the scores. I, you know, They're nice, and I want us to be able to come back in six months and do another one and see if we've moved the needle and what that looked like. But the reality is what we're looking for is that rich dialogue. I just want to get people talking to find out why they feel the way they do. So don't worry about the score. Let's get the dialogue on the table and let's get some conversations going that we know we need to be talking about. So that's how we make sure we're taking that feeling of, oh, my gosh, this is all about me away from the the CEO. It truly isn't. Mm. And, uh, Susie and Laurie, if I could interject something real quick, not to not to block that flow, because Laurie's that that's a really important part of this. But uh, part of the training uh, recommends that you take the CEO out to dinner beforehand. It, don't go to the office. Take him out to dinner, and if I can add, make sure you pay you pay the bills that night. <laughs> 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 Yeah, don't don't ask the CEO to. And it puts it in a different setting. It's a relaxed setting. You bring your your reports, bring the data with you, let them look at it. Uh, but if I could interject that, Laura, I thought that was great, great advice to take them out to eat, drop the anxiety level down a little. Yeah. Yeah. And that worked in this with this group that you're doing now. That's how you did that with the that executive. I did. Yeah. I did. Uh huh. And so could you feel his, uh, I'm assuming it's a him because I think he might have said a he, but that could you see him relax more into it? And and Yeah, it it was a little of a challenge. He's a high C and uh, it is personal, as you know, sometimes. But uh, I I had some time and credibility built up with him and he relaxed. And as Laurie said, this isn't about him. This is about the organization. This isn't a, a personal assessment. This is a system assessment. And yeah, by the end of the, the meal, he, he was ready to get on to the next day. The next day <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And just that, that reminder is what we started with today, moving from the watchmaker to the beekeeper, is to help retrain the CEO's mindset and habit of thought around, okay, I like being a watchmaker. As you said, Laurie, 
we like being the watchmaker because yeah. it feels, you know, it's tactile and it's, yep. you know, we get to be the expert. And, uh, but at the end of the day, that hinders all the goals that most leaders have. And it disengages people because like, where do I fit into this? How do I matter? So I just see it feels like to me, it could be a huge culture change just going through the process by helping the CEO shift. Exactly, Susie. Yep. Exactly. And on the website, we'll put this in the show notes, we, sh- we have a sample, we've got an overview of the seven stages of growth, and we have a sample of some of the output. And so I'll share a link to that in the show notes so people can see that and just understand what's being measured. But powerful tool, and it's so exciting to be able to talk about it and for people to know about it and to consider something like this as they're trying to direct uh, their organization. We're going to go into some uh, talking about your career and get let people get to know both you and John a little bit. And some of that will surely segue about seven stages of growth. But are there any other key points? We've talked about the rules, seven stages, you know, how you help a CEO relax. Is there any like key thing that we should share that I'm not asking about that you think is super important? And I'll let Laura, you start and John, you finish. Well, there is, Susie, just because I love talking about them, the language, again, is kind of cool. We have what we call hidden agents. And a hidden agent is something that literally, literally lies beneath the surface of the organization. So we don't really understand what's causing it. We'll chase it around. So there's surface symptoms that show up. But if you've ever run an organization, you get frustrated because you think, I just fixed that. <laughs> what would be an example? What was something um, that you said? Okay, a good example would be, I thought we understood how that process was supposed to work. So I thought we did the training on it. Why are you all so confused about it? Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> all the time. So the root cause of that could simply be the process doesn't work anymore. But nobody's asking the question. There's a couple of things. There's, I, I should mention transition zones. There's two transition zones that you move through as you go from one stage of growth to another. And the first one is what we call a flood zone. And the flood zone is when the level of activity increases so much and so fast that you feel like you're drowning. And the flood zone happens when you go from stage one to stage two. So think about a startup with one to 10 employees suddenly landing in stage two, you've got more people, you've got more money, you've got more processes, you've got more customers. Suddenly, everybody in the organization is feeling like, oh my gosh, we were just this little thing starting out yesterday and now suddenly everything's crazy. Then when you go from stage two to stage three, you go through what we call a wind tunnel. And the wind tunnel is when you have to let go of old methodologies that no longer work, and you have to address and accept new ones that do. So in my example, we might have gone through a wind tunnel, and we may be holding on thinking, well, it worked yesterday, everything was fine yesterday, so we didn't think to look at those processes, and we might have outgrown them. They may be too small for the size of our company today. And we're just ignoring that issue because that's harder to fix than to blame somebody for not knowing how to do the process. Mm. So that's what we call hidden agents. And then those transition zones are critical. Another hidden agent is 
something we call the builder protector ratio. And the builders are people in our organizations that love risk. They're always looking for ways to improve the revenue stream and they're anxious to get out there and try new things. Those are builders, they're very confident. But on the flip side, we have what we call protectors and that's people that tend to wanna slow things down. They're a little suspicious of growth and they might not be as comfortable with that risk as a builder is. And those, the, the builders tend to be our CEOs and probably our sales teams. And our protectors tend to be our financial people and maybe our operations people. And you need both of them. So the other way I think about it is the confident caution ratio. And if I see or I'm talking to a CEO and I get a sense that they're not as confident in talking about issues or talking about their folks or talking about their growth strategies, then I can kind of get to the place where I'm thinking they need to show more confidence because their caution is holding their team back. Mm. If the CEO isn't confident, I'll guarantee you there's fear and uncertainty in the management team. So by understanding how that builder-protector ratio changes with each stage of growth, somebody like John or any other one of the growth curve strategists that are out there working this model can quickly identify how they can help that CEO become more confident. And just that little tweak, just making a slight adjustment in this thing we call a hidden agent could truly make a huge difference and not take that long, quite honestly. So the hidden agents are really, an, there's about seven of them that are in this model. And we, we talk about them all the time with our CEOs so they, because they're changing as they go through like stage three, the builder protector ratio is one to one. And when you get into stage four, it's three builders to two protectors. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. So these are really, again, rich conversations you can have with your CEO. So the hidden agents and those transition zones are pretty critical to understand. That's interesting. And so it, you have that framework as, as John is the facilitator and you're the facilitator of the conversation. You have that framework, you're looking for it. But the x-ray is also, is the x-ray revealing the hidden agents as well? It is. Or it just allows you to talk about. So it reveals those to where those are. How amazing is that? It's kind of like if you went to the doctor and they didn't do an x-ray and they just said, hmm, you know, just pie in the sky. Let me come up with a suggestion, you know, so it's, it really focuses what you do and where they go. It's really amazing. Exactly. Exactly, Susie. That's what's so very, very cool about it because you're absolutely right. It bubbles it up. It gives everybody a sense that now we're talking about the real issue, not just the surface issue. Now we're actually fixing it. And that's what John was saying. When you get into those conversations, it's magical how people just suddenly go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what our problem is. Let's put that on a board. Let's fix it. Let's get it done. Yeah. Instead of like we put it on a board in a situation where you don't have such clarity and we're revisiting it again in four weeks or six weeks or six months, you know, fix it. That's exactly. awesome. And then with all of these terms, they're so interesting because they do paint a picture. But if somebody's getting saying, okay, there's seven, this or six, it doesn't matter. They don't need to know all that. The questions and the way that, you know, who they select to 
participate, it guides you through all that, and your facilitator guides you through all that as well. That's exactly. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good to hear all the terms because they make sense, but I could see someone saying, okay, gosh, there's a lot of pieces to this. They don't need to know it. All they need to do is go through it and, and if it's a match for them. What would be some of your comments if you have some more to share, John, about what Laurie shared or what we've talked about about seven stages of growth? Susie, in a nutshell, previously I'd worked a lot and still do with assessments that have to do with people and teams. With my primary focus being strategic planning, there was a, a kind of limit to that. Uh, you know, the, we're all familiar with these Myers-Briggs and EQ and DISC and that. And listen, those are awesome tools. I use them with great fondness. But what seven stages of growth does is gives you a system snapshot rather than an individual or subsystem snapshot. And it, it's unique that way. It, it gives the CEO in an organization something unlike anything else I've ever seen. It's that good. That's amazing. That's great. So, yeah, I'm so glad, John, that you and I are connecting on this. I mean, you're the lead on this through any of my clients. Um, But I like being a part of it and knowing about it and getting more familiar with it with this conversation as well. So let's jump into some so people can get to know you. And these are just always interesting to learn more about people. And, John, why don't we start with you? Who's most influenced you in your life and career? And how did they influence you? The first person I would say was my mother. I can, that's just as short and sweet as I, I know how to put that one. The first university we all go to is the family, right? And um, mom had a lot to do with the kind of person I am, the good parts. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of good parts. Uh, uh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so the what in particular second, stands I, out for you about that? Is there like one thing that really stands out? No, no. There's a thousand Everything. things. Yeah. About, yeah thousand things. About well, you're it. very altruistic and you're very giving. So I'm thinking that was from your family. No? So the other, the other thing I would share is that there was a time in my life, I was about 40, 42, where I was kind of at, at a stale point, knew that I needed some more training and needed kind of a jump start. And I got in a doctoral program and there was a guy out of Georgia, Susie, I think he's living in Florida now, but was trained. He was a TTI, like you and I are, and ran a, as part of the intake program with a doctoral program, a TTI management staff disc. And he basically said to me, and this is when I realized the power of these kind of things, something I was first offended at. And then later it kind of <laughs> played out. And I went, oh my gosh, it's, yeah. this is real stuff. He said, look, you're really not a managerial type, John. You are a startup or kind of a turnaround guy. And I went, what? <laughs> and, you know, tell me more. It was a tell me more by the time it got over. But anyway, you run up onto this, these people that are terrific at this kind of thing, at what we do. And I said, man, I, I really want to learn about that. And so that was my engagement with the, you know, the company out in Phoenix, Susie, that you you and I are part of. Laurie is too. And that was a game changer. That was a career change. Yeah. Um, I mentioned his name. I, I don't guess it matters. A guy named Bob Calvert from uh, North Georgia. And he had been in banking all his life, got into with TTI and began these assessments and powerful, powerful stuff in my life. Yeah. And I'm very thankful I ran across him. 
Yep. 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 That's great. I love that. Lori? It's funny. I would say my parents had obviously, again, that's where we start. And I just remember my mother teaching me the golden rule. I mean, she she was such a caring, giving person. And she said, you know, you need to recognize that you want to treat others as you would treat them. So I always kept that in mind. And I always try really hard to recognize how somebody else is feeling about something before I judge or before I go there. Because that's just a really important rule in my world. It, it kept me strong with the values that they taught me, the belief system that I grew up with, and the work ethic that I continue to have throughout my career. And then I think also my very first boss. You know, when you're young, you're uh, 20 years old and you're getting your first job, there's so many things you don't know and you don't understand. And I had a really good first boss who was caring, but good at teaching me things and not letting me just slide through. If something didn't go well, he corrected me. He nicely said, Lori, that's not the best way to handle something like that. And back then we didn't have all these other tools to determine our you know, personality traits. He was definitely, I'm certain at that point, a very high D and a very high C, but I learned so much from him. So those were huge influences in my life that I still think about today. So the power of your first boss, that's a big deal that it could uh, encourage and correct and, and look, look what you're doing today and all the books you've written and impact you're having. So all bosses out there talking to millennials and one wanna, um, or other at young ages, helping them become better makes a difference. It's huge. Um, it's yep. huge, Susie. Yeah, we remember it. Hey, so talk about education, books, training programs that have been most instrumental. One of the links that we want to put in the show notes, we'll put links, Lori, to your books and also James um, Fisher. It's Navigating the Growth Curve. Okay, good. So we'll and put that on here. Yeah, I think you can still find it on Amazon, Susie. Okay, all right. All right, we'll put a link to it if we can find it. All right, so John, kick us off education books or training that have been most instrumental in your development? Gosh, I, I would mention two books that just jump out. Uh, they're different in a way. One of them is probably familiar with you and the other, maybe, maybe not. One is Stephen Covey's classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. <laughs> have never forgotten. If you want to be heard, listen first. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just used that over and over and over. The second one is a book called Theory U, and it's very long. It's 500 pages, very detailed, but I've never found any other book quite like it that allowed you to engage in a collaborative process for a positive outcome. It's, mm. it's the best. You remember who that's by? Otto Schaumer. Uh There's a very short PDF online that you can also find of that, but anyway, that, that was the book. The training. Uh, look, the, the the association with Target Training International Success Insights has been fantastic. And that whole process with them, the associations, the people, much less the uh, what you learned with using EQ and DISC and all the other assessments that TTI offers has been wonderful. So I'd say those two books and that training. Cool. Susan. Lori? 
I can remember being employed again, very young and working and not really having any training in how to manage people. I was running recreation centers back then. And so I eventually went and got my master's degree. And I was one of these people, and I admit it because I feel so silly about it now, that I was thinking, oh, it's all about experience. Education, who cares? You know, I was just glad I got through my undergraduate program and I'm actually working. This is the big deal. I'm working. Well, it wasn't working that I was working. And I went and got my master's degree. And that was when all the lights started going on about organizational development issues and people issues and why I was trying to treat all of my people, all of my employees exactly the same because I thought that's what would work when in fact they're all individual people and I needed to adjust my leadership style to what their needs were. So my master's degree really, I think just skyrocketed me to be a much better, much more authentic leader and I stopped trying to talk to people, and I started engaging people in conversations. That was a huge turnaround in my own personal career. And then I've also gone through, I'm sure you're familiar with John Maxwell. Mm -hmm. And I went to his program and went through his speaking program that they teach and had a wonderful experience. I met Les Brown. I met John personally. He's such an authentic, real person. So that was another good place for me because I love speaking and that's how I built my business. So again, going back and just reminding myself of some of those critical principles that make you a good speaker was extremely beneficial. Has Maxwell written a particular book on speaking? He has not. His is okay. all based on leadership. He's got, I think, 70 some books just yeah. on the whole leadership topic, Susie, but I don't think he's done one on speaking. Yeah. No. Okay. You have a favorite John Maxwell leadership book? You know, I do. It's the 21 Irrefutable Laws, laws of Leadership. The 21 yeah. Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And this is one I use all the time when I'm talking to CEO audiences because one of his, the very first law is the law of the lid. And the law of the lid says that your company will only rise to the level of the leader's competency. So if your leader isn't constantly learning and getting better, the company's going to hit a ceiling with that leader's ability to take the company forward. And that always speaks so clearly to me. And I think it helps CEOs recognize you're the block. If you're not, <laughs> yeah. you know, if yeah. you're not, continually learning and helping yourself be better, your organization is not going to move beyond your own competency level. So that's a big deal. Yeah. That is uh, a big deal. Yeah. Yep. I heard somebody put it this way, growing leaders grow growing companies. Mm, yep. Growing that, leaders grow growing companies. That, that, that's, a, that's a nice take. Yeah. I wish I'd, I wish it was original, but it, it's not, but it's still good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. And, and using that law of the lid is a great way to introduce it without, uh, I always think about right. how can I, how can I introduce or talk about this topic and reduce resistance, you know, yeah. ensuring more acceptance. So yeah. uh, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if nobody wants to hear it, it doesn't work. But that introducing that mm -hmm. is super mm -hmm. helpful. So that's good. I didn't have not read that book, but now you've caught my interest in it, especially with the law of the lid. <laughs> I love that. 
Um, yeah, it's pretty powerful. It really is. Okay, so I got to put that on my list. We'll put it in the notes too. I know he has a million books. So when you think of the word successful, John, who's the first person that comes to mind? Gosh, a supervisor that was early on in my career. And he was a former uh, World War II. He was a World War II veteran. I believe he was POW for a while. Just a remarkable, you know, it's the type of guy that you thought you were growing up and nonetheless, that's who you want to be <laughs> when you still want to grow up, you know? Yeah. Um, when Brokaw called him the greatest generation, I'm not so sure he was off the mark there. He was a great human being. And, and it's been a blessing in my life to run into a bunch of them. But he, Truman kind of jumps to mind. Yeah. Was his name Truman? He married Truman Brooks, yeah. yeah. That's, that's the one that jumps to mind. He was clergy. He, he performed our wedding. Oh, when how nice and I got married. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, that was a, that was a real, uh, I had to talk Jennifer into letting him do it. So that was a real challenge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and she loved him too. And, and yeah. it, he just did a beautiful job. But, you know, he had that awesome combination of intelligence, integrity, authenticity, transparency, toughness. I mean, he just, he was an iron fist in a velvet glove. That's what he was. Just a tremendous human being. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. A wonderful influence on you. And he married you too. That's so and cool. And he married me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it worked. Yeah. It stuck. How long have you been married? <laughs> yeah, it stuck. yeah he, he must have done a good, pretty good job with that. Yeah. yeah. You've been married how long, John? Gosh, 30 something years now. Yeah. Oh, you should know the specifics. I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> I know that. I know. I know. 30, I always, is it 30? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just teasing you. I'd have to think for a minute, too, because I can't always track what year it is and when do we, you know, go so fast. Yeah. Lori, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind for you? You know, here's what popped into my mind and a little different than an individual, honestly, business owners, especially business owners who are juggling families and trying to run a business at the same time. I just, I have so much respect for somebody who's out there working hard every day to build a business which employs people, provides people with, you know, incomes that they can raise their own families with. That I always just feel so proud to find successful business owners and get a chance to talk to them. So they are truly the people I feel very close to and, and appreciate all that they do every day, especially single women who are running businesses and raising kids at the same time. Yeah, that's amazing, Pete. And it seems like that should get more honor uh, yes. just in our media or just yeah. as humans. Yeah. It's, it's also, I put that right, with honoring older people. Yes. Um, you know, seniors who, you know, it's like, we should honor their journey. And then the business owner, what they're doing, like you said, employing people and, yeah, that's a tough job. And yeah, having taken having a risks. family. Yeah. yeah, they're taking risks every day. Their house is on the line. I mean, this is, this is not an easy place to play. And, and there's tons of them every day working themselves into a frenzy. And, there's good rewards. I mean, there's rewards that go with running a successful business, but they, they don't take a lot of time to celebrate those rewards, do they? Mm -mm. Well, there's always the next thing. 
there's always the next thing we have to go chase down. So those tend to be my heroes, not to mitigate other people that do other wonderful things. But my world is full of people like that. And so they always come to mind first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, with a great coach and facilitator, I'm sure we all work to help them celebrate. Yes. How great this is, what you just did, be their champion too. So yep, exactly, Susie. When they want to brush over it and go on to the next thing. (laughs) So a lot of what we talk about here, I have Wake Up Eager Wednesday, which I do mind, body, spirit tips. And it's just a kind of a personal hobby of mine, but it is uh, the work that I care most about is helping people get to where they want to go so that they can enjoy every day. And so the term I always use is wake up eager. So let's uh, talk about things that you all do that help you create the days that feel good and right for you. And uh, mind, body, spirit, what would you share, John? Some quick, quick things that work for you. Well, gosh, I tried to both open the day and close the day with some quiet time where I prayerfully look at the day or close the day, study a little perhaps. And a new habit I've picked up is making sure, no matter if I'm playing tennis later on in the day or going to the gym or riding horses or whatever, that I'm, I'm doing a 20-minute hard walk and include some running in it. But I'm making sure, whatever else, that I'm doing that even before breakfast. And that's been a nice daily habit to pick up. So another thing I'd quickly mention that there is an ancient tradition in certain circles of dividing the day between study and manual labor or physical exertion, and it's either quiet time or worship. Those three things, mentally, there's study involved, physically, in this case, physical labor, and then where the soul and spirit are nurtured too. So Mm -hmm. I've tried to divide my day into three quadrants and making sure that all three of those are part of each day. And that, in a nutshell, Susie, that's how I'd answer that. Yeah. I love it. It's a great nutshell, John. I love it. Feels good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Lori, what would you say? Well, I'm going to take my cue from John. I'm just going to do what he's doing. But uh, <laughs> what, what, oh, my I goodness. Do, what I try to do is I'm an optimist. That's I've always been an optimist. So I'm always, I always find something positive about the day. So I know... You know, like today, I was going to get a chance to talk with you, Susie, and interact with John. So I always look for the positive things that are going to happen that I can influence or create because I'm completely in charge of those things. So, and I walk, my husband and I walk every morning. We have two pups, uh, dogs, and I play ball with them. Um, They're a joy. So I love to see them chasing their little ball around the yard. So the clarity that comes with my day helps me to feel in control of the day, knowing that I'm going to have interruptions. But as long as I feel like I've gotten some stuff done, I'm very good. I feel good about myself. I feel good about what I do. So there's that piece, that that clarity and that optimism. And then I try again to, to exercise. I love what John said because I love working outdoors. I love working in the yard. I think we're happier when we're active. I think our minds are happier when we're active. And I spend a lot of time in front of a computer. So it's better for me to make those breaks happen often. And I don't usually sit in front of my computer more than maybe 30 to 45 minutes or except when I'm writing. I tend to do a two-hour writing thing, but still, 
and then my family you know i'm very close to my my sister my brother my nieces my nephews and yeah yeah i love to be around them that's, I love to talk that's to so them. important laura yeah it is yeah. and I, I say this all the time family is everything and there's always some things that may not set right but it doesn't matter they're family and that's what we all want to i always want to believe that we'll always have each other and they'll always be there for us and then the other group that I enjoy so much working with, Susie, is my Growth Curve Specialist and Strategist community. I, I get such pleasure out of talking to them, just like what John is talking about. I get to share in his successes. I get to hear what he's doing. And when I can answer a question or help them do something, I just feel solid and I feel good about that. So those are the things that kind of keep me. I love sunsets and I love sunrises. And we're in Tucson, Arizona, and they're just spectacular. And I just, I breathe them in. <laughs> That's awesome. Love that. That is awesome. So let's do some get to know you questions. Um, John, what actor would you want to play you in a movie? Well, I have two, Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck. Oh, <laughs> I like Gregory it. Gregory Peck or Charlton Heston. Yeah, just flip a coin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can see both of those. What's your favorite possession? I'd have to say, my horses, mm. we have horses, but I, I, I'm not sure sometimes that they're possessions. You know, there's a partnership when you are riding at a thousand pound animal. Yes. You know? And so it's, uh, but yeah, I just, I love, and there's a lot of leadership, some of the leadership stuff, you know, horses, you have to learn their language in order to communicate with them. Mm. They don't talk English. So there's a lot of stuff that you can learn from working with horses. Anyway, short horses. I'd say those are my favorite possessions, but they're more friends. So you have more than um, one horse? Yeah. Um, we have three horses and two donkeys. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How fun yeah, is that? Yeah, the donkeys are kind of like big uh, dogs, pasture dogs. <laughs> yeah. Fun, 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 fun. Okay, so Lori, what about you? What's your favorite possession? You know, I love John's story about horses. I gave this a lot of thought, Susie, and it really is my sense of who I am. I know that seems kind of weird as a possession, but I, I don't look at things as possessing them. I look at how I look at things. And, and we've all gone through it, right? I'm, you know, older and wiser. And there have been times in my life I wasn't clear of who I was or how I reacted or things that I did well or the reasons I did things. So today I'm very confident and comfortable about who I am and how I've evolved as an individual. So that would be how I would answer that. But to John's point, we used to have horses, John, and there is nothing I don't think more spiritual than being on a horse or being with a horse. And I just, I can get very emotional about what they bring to our lives. So good for you. Yeah. We don't have them, oh, anymore, but I love, yeah. really love them. Yeah. Yep. 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 Love that. Both of those. And how about share a funny story that your family tells about you? Well, you know, I'll, I'll let Laurie take that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing that one, right? Yeah. yeah I'm gonna I'm a dodge that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally early on. I've always been directionally challenged. I can't tell up or down, north from south, east from west. And I lived in Colorado all of my life, mostly all of my life. And in the Colorado, the mountains are in the west. So 
it was very clear and easy for me when I was in Colorado to know where I was going if it was daylight. So the story that my family tells about me is I was at a restaurant with my mother-in-law and we left that rest in the hometown I grew up in. <laughs> and I drove out of the parking lot. It was dark. I drove the wrong way. I got us completely lost. And, you know, she was so sweet. I I'd say, okay, uh, Anna Marie, I think I know kind of where we are. We're not really lost. I'm just kind of misdirected right now. She goes, Lori, don't you worry about it. I know you'll figure it out. I'm in my hometown and I'm driving around lost because I can't. Get this, <laughs> this is before GPS. So, yeah. but even today, and it's, uh, you know, my husband has just given up on me now and I'm, I'm very clear and okay with it. I can walk out of a store in a mall and turn the wrong way. Oh, you and I cannot go shopping together. Cause I do that too. I, would, <laughs> I always tell my husband that he's Daniel Boone, you know, it's like, okay, Daniel Boone, tell me which way to go. Cause I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't care where where my husband is. He's go okay. That's north. I'm going. How do you know? Yeah, that? he does too. I know. What is that? So yeah. I, it's just that's the story they all tell about. I Lori. love it. Like, you know, she just that is great, Lori. <laughs> yeah, you're human. I, I, I like that, Lori. You know, I, you know, I I think so much of you, and uh, hear that little human touch. It's, that's good. That's good, huh? <laughs> yep. You ever want to challenge her? put her in a yeah. obstacle course <laughs> okay. with uh, no directions. GPS yeah. Yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, Don't let me drive. That's yeah. All. yeah, yeah, let her drive. Hey, John, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Susie, we don't have the time. We don't? We don't You're not going to answer I, it? I, no, I, I don't. <laughs> There's just so much, you know, looking back, gosh. I would say the number one thing is enjoy the journey, seize the moment, yeah. take the day, coffee diem kind of live in the now. The big curve then, and it continues to be, how do you love people? You know, how do you love the not me? Yeah. You know, and that's that's still the journey. And I was certainly on that as a 25-year-old. But anyway, that's a short answer. Yeah. Love it. Lori? Well, I thought about this. I would say save for that rainy day. And know what you value, know what your beliefs are, and stay true to them. Don't let somebody misdirect you. It's hard sometimes when we're younger to, to run into people who don't respect our beliefs and we're a little vulnerable and we can be manipulated more than we like to believe we could be. So to me, it's just be true to yourself and, and know what those values are. Yeah. Great advice, both of you. That's good, Laura. Mm -hmm. So, John, if you could put a billboard anywhere, what would it be? What would it say? Well, you know, Elvis grew up kind of close to where I, we live here. <laughs> yes. And there's one out on 55 as, you know, and Graceland is not too far from here. And, of course, Elvis is the billboards out there. And, you know, it's directions to Graceland. And Elvis is, is young. And he's, you know, he's got the guitar. And, and I've often thought driving past it. You know, if I was right beside Elvis Presley on that billboard, Elvis would make me look good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably that one. You would get on the Elvis billboard. <laughs> if I could, you, can get, you can get me on the Elvis billboard. I know you're well connected, Susie, but. There we go. Awesome I'm on it, man. Pull, pull, pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say anything next to it or you just be hanging out with Elvis? 
Listen, I didn't. I, I wouldn't care if I could just get next to Elvis there for just a second. Everybody be yeah. talking about you in your hometown. That'd yeah, be awesome. Right. Who is he? That'd run he? me down. Yeah. 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 Hey, he's friends with Elvis. Lori, what did you say? I just said believe in yourself. That would be what I would put on my billboard. Mm, I love that. All right. So we're going to close the last bit of wisdom and around seven stages of growth and executives and leadership and getting where you want to go. I'll start with you, Lori, and close with John. What's your last bit of advice or wisdom that you'd want everybody to take away from this podcast? You know, Susie, it's this. It's you do not have to figure it out as you go. There is a model that will help you figure out what you need to do next to grow a successful company. And that model is there to help you predict how growth is going to impact you. It's there to help you focus on the right things at the right time. And it will help you adapt your leadership skills to what the company is telling you it needs today. So in my thinking, please, if you are a business owner, don't think there's not any help out there, especially CEOs who tend to live in their own world. They don't really have people they can turn to unless they have a coach or they're in a, an advisory group. But I want them to recognize you do not have to figure it out as, as you go. There is a model to help you grow your business. Awesome. John? Pick up the phone and call somebody about seven stages of growth. Just begin the conversation. That's the first step to uh, bringing on board an awesome, awesome material, resource, and some wonderful people out there that could really help take an organization to the next level. That's what I would say, Susan. Right. Great. Thank you both. You've been awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you. We really appreciate the time. It's been a privilege, Susie. Thank you. It has. It's been fun, and you do a great job, Susie. So thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion and got a better understanding of the seven stages of growth. Some of my key takeaways uh, or favorite quotes when John said alignment precedes engagement. We can all understand that and have seen that when the team is aligned and they're out there working on engagement. It's a totally different story than if there's not alignment in the message and the vision and what we're actually doing and why we do it. You need alignment and to get it, you have to have clarity and you have to have buy-in. And I just love that this process creates that. He also said something that I thought was very sharp and smart, which is key to strategic growth is intentionality over time. So if you want to be grow and you want to do it in the way that's most strategic and helpful to the organization and to yourself, you have to be intentional about it. And that's another thing that I like about their process is it helps you be intentional. You know exactly what you need to do. As we talked about, you know what the priorities are and you know, because your job is to figure out what the priorities are. And so this tool helps you do that. And lastly, when Laurie closed with, you know, you don't have to figure it out as you go. It's not, doesn't have to be hit or miss. There is a way to be very specific and correct about going forward. So we have information on our website about seven stages of growth and some contact information for John. You'll see all that in the show notes. So we've got a summary and uh, we'll have a link to the sample seven stages of growth x-ray 
output, just so you can see that. And I would just encourage you to go over to John's profile and click on it in on our website and shoot him a note. We've got a contact form there and, and just have a conversation with him about what's this about? Here's what I'm thinking about and uh, learn about it and just start a conversation. He's a great guy and he'll take good care of you if you decide to move forward. And if you don't, you'll at least have had the conversation to figure out whether it is a match. The show notes for today is pricelessprofessional.com forward slash beekeeper. That's all one word. Next up, the next episode is going to be about the disc assessment. And a particular bugaboo of mine is that when the disc assessment is weaponized, so when it gets overused or gets applied, assuming certain things about people or is used to judge or pigeonhole people. So when the disc assessment is weaponized, I'm going to talk about that. I see it. And then what do you do about it and how to make sure that doesn't happen with that tool? Also want to mention our Wake Up Eager Wednesday tools and tips. I do those every Wednesday. And if you go to wakeupeager.com, you'll see uh, my favorite tips for waking up eager, mind, body, and spirit. And I've started that here in 2019. I also post them on our Facebook Wake Up Eager link and it's on LinkedIn. And so if you are interested in that, go check it out. Look forward to catching up with you in the next go around. If I can help you in any way, please reach out. Take care. Have an awesome day. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources. 